Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Thank you, my BB. This is Shannon Riley coming to you from KSEF Digital Radio, 75 Live, 75.com. And that was my dear daughter, BB, welcoming her dear old dad, Shannon Riley, back for another episode of Shannon Shakespeare Sunday, right here on KSEF. I'm really excited about today's show. I can't wait to jump into it. But once again, I'm Shannon Riley. If you're new to the show, I'm here every Sunday talking about the world's greatest writer, William Shakespeare. I am not a Shakespearean scholar. I do not profess to be one. But I do believe greatly in the works of William Shakespeare. love to talk about it. I read about it a lot. And I love to share everything that I find out. And today is a very special episode for me because today, since it's very close to Christmas, I thought it'd be fun to get in the Wayback Machine, go back to the Elizabethan period, and re-experience what the Elizabethans experienced at Christmas time. But before we do that, a couple of business things I want to talk about. First of all, I'm Shannon Riley. If you want to reach me, you got an idea for a show, you got a question you'd like me to answer, or for any reason, send me an email at shannonjriley.com. That's shannonjriley.com. Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. I'll happily answer it for you. I would love to hear from you as much as I can. And, and by the way, if you're at shannonjriley.com, take a moment to look at my short plays, my long plays, my short films. Check everything out there. If you'd like to read any of those, I'd love to send that to you, too. I'm very excited about my work, and I want to share it. So that's ShannonJRiley.com if you want to reach me. Now, there's a couple of other things we like to do before we start every time, and the first one is... And now, the Shakespeare Book of the Week. That's right, the Shakespeare Book of the Week. Now, anyone who's been listening to the show or knows me knows I have a lot of Shakespeare books, and some of them are just plain reference books. And I've often thought, wow, if a fire ever hit my house and I had time to save one book, what would I save? Well, it might possibly be this one. It's a book that might not appeal to all of you, but for those of you who are actors or actually have to do any Shakespeare, consider the book All the World's World's On Stage, a complete pronunciation dictionary for the plays of William Shakespeare by Lewis Sheeter and Shane Ann Utes. I got to tell you, this book is amazing. When I was in graduate school and you had to look up the pronunciation of a word in Shakespeare, you had to go to the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary. It was a long series of books. You had to dig for quite some time to find what you were looking for, and you had to be at a library. Nobody owned the OED. It was too expensive. So it was very hard in order to look up anything. Of course, these are the days before the Internet. Well, this book, All the Worlds on Stage, has everything in it. I've yet to find something that is missing, and it gives you a great definition of uh, or a pronunciation guide for all of the words, names, proper places in Shakespeare's plays. 
small, it's handy, I can take it to rehearsal. Actors and I have really come to rely on it. So if you are a performer, check out All the Worlds on Stage. It was published in 2002, and again, the authors are Lewis Sheeter and Shane Ann Newtz. Also, it's time for... And now, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. That's right, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. Now, Shakespeare didn't write a lot about Christmas, but he does have this quote. At Christmas time, I no more desire a rose than wish a snow in May's new-fangled mirth. That's from Love's Labor's Lost, Act 1, Scene 1. Shakespeare didn't write a lot about Christmas. It's mentioned only in a few plays, and none of his plays are set at Christmas time. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that um, Christmas was not as big a holiday to at least the Elizabethans as it is to us today. It, the most important uh, holiday on their calendar was Easter. That was a very important feast day, very important religious holiday. Uh, Christmas came in a very close second. And Christmas was celebrated much more by the poor, which we're going to talk about in just a little bit. But there is that reference to Christmas in Love's Labor's Lost. Uh, not one of Shakespeare's best plays, but nevertheless, it's got a good reference. And also, it's time for Shakespeare's Fun Fact. I like to do one of these every uh episode two, and this one isn't really a Shakespeare fun fact as much as it is an Elizabethan fun fact that fits in with today's story. It's the origin of the term eating humble pie. Humble pie is, of course, eating humble pie is that reference to having to eat your words or to backtrack or to apologize for something that you've done. However, in the past, humble pie came from an actual thing called umble pie. Umbles were the intestines of large game. Now, back in the Elizabethan period, and even before that, way into the Middle Ages, you couldn't just go shooting deer in the woods. Every part of land belonged to somebody, to some gentry, to some lord. And in order to hunt on that land, you had to get their permission. And very often you did not. Sometimes you'd get permission to go hunting on the land, but you would have to give the deer and most of the meat to the lord himself. So when they would have these massive feasts around the holidays, they would bring in these large stags and they would gut them and scrape out the intestines, the brains, the liver, the heart. Uh, all of this would be stewed together with suet and apples and salt and curd and sugar and spices and put into a pie called umble pie. And the umble pie is what a lot of the servants ate. So Humble pie was really a thing, and it eventually became known as humble pie. That is your Shakespeare fun fact. Kind of a gross one, but a lot of Elizabethan era is kind of a gross one. All right, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Christmas now, and I'm going to break it up into different groups. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to first of all start let you listen to this. Sleeves, and it was a very popular song during the 15th and 16th century. It was first set down uh, in the patent office at 1580. Uh, now, there's a lot of references to what Green Sleeves was uh, related to. Some people say it was about um, 
um, Bloody Mary or uh, Mary Queen of Scots. It was about neither of those ladies. Green Sleeves was actually, according to the author, written about a woman of loose character or loose morals. The term Green Sleeves refers to a woman whose gown has green grass stains on it from doing improper things on the lawn. Uh, so, but this song became synonymous with Christmas time. And what's interesting too is it was actually mentioned three times in Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor's. So I thought it'd be nice to play a little bit of Green Sleeves, get us all in the Christmas spirit. Somehow it's become a Christmas tune in uh, modern times. And so let me play that in the background while I tell you a few more things about the Elizabethan calendar. Now, when I start talking about the different things that happened during Christmas time. You have to keep in mind two things. The first thing is that when you go from one religion to another religion, back and forth, back and forth over a series of very close years, some customs got very blended and confused. When you were a Catholic, Protestant, then Catholic, then Protestant, some of your holiday traditions might have changed. In the countryside, they might not have changed at all. So in my research for today's program, I found some places contradicting other places. Some books saying they did do this, some saying they didn't, some saying that was too papist. For instance, there's a very strong reference that in a lot of churches, a wooden figure of the Christ child in a manger would be set up on altars of the church. Some people say there's no way that Protestants would do that, but I kind of think that they maybe did. Certainly, there was no such thing as a nativity set yet. The nativity scene didn't come to England uh, from Italy until well into the 17th, uh, late 17th century. But the idea that a wooden Christ child in a manger might have been set up in front of the altar is very much a possibility. But that depends. Maybe some places wouldn't have done it because they found that to be too Catholic and they would have tried not to do that for fear that it might upset the Queen. So as I go through this I'm going to try and talk about customs that we believe happened but they may have been different from place to place and they may have gone in and out of favor depending upon what year it was and who was on the throne. But I'm going to try and stay with the fun stuff today since it is Christmas. Now Christmas came at the end of Advent just like it does today but Advent was a staunch time of fasting, of eating fish and eating bland food and eating very, very little. The Elizabethans took this very seriously. So by the time they got to Christmas and the fast was broken, they were ready for good food and brother, did they bring it on. If you were poor, fasting was hard enough. So when you got to Christmas, you really got a chance to have some really sweet food that didn't normally fall onto your plate. And all of this was provided by the wealthy. The more wealthy you were, the more you were expected to take care of the poor and the people who were beneath you. It was just plain expected that an English gentleman would care for his charges and provide fine food and drink for those people lesser than who he was. Begging was quite common during the Christmas period. And by the way, the Christmas period I'm talking about, it's not just two days or three days. It was 12 full days, starting December the 24th and going all the way up until January 6th, known as Twelfth Day, with a big feast at night 
called the Twelfth Night. And that was the whole Christmas period. So it went on for a long time, and it was marked by some great, great food and merriment. So this period was a long time. And some lords even went so far as to build what they called feasting houses out on their front lawns. There would be large temporary structures made with a lot of openings of glass so that people could see inside and see the huge opulent meals that the Lord was providing for not only himself but his guests and those that were beneath him. Except for the servants who had to eat a humble pie, I guess. So these massive buildings and, and these structures filled with this beautiful food would have been served throughout the entire 12 days of Christmas, which we're going to go into in much more detail after this break. Again, I'm Shannon Riley. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're going to have a Merry Christmas yourself. So stay tuned. And on the other side of the break, let me tell you some more about the wonderful times the Elizabethan had at Christmas on this Shannon's Shakespeare Sunday on KSEF. And we're back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio, 75Live, 75.com. I'm Shannon Riley here to talk to you more about the greatest playwright who ever lived, William Shakespeare. And today is our special Christmas episode where we talk about the Christmas of the Elizabethans. I'm really excited to share things that I've learned about uh, and uh, things that I've really enjoyed thinking about over the years when it comes to Christmas and what was going on in Shakespeare's life. Now, as I said when we started, the poor would have really made out at Christmas time. Begging was allowed in the streets and was very successful. Food was being brought to you. As a matter of fact, landlords were expected to give presents to their tenants. Uh, usually it was wood for the fire. It could also be new clothes. It was more likely that food was shared among people than any other gift that would have gone out during the Elizabethan period. And by the way, when it comes to Christmas Day, that was a day that was set aside for two things. That was going to church, and the second thing was eating. No presents were exchanged on Christmas Day in the Elizabethan period. Although presents were exchanged, that wasn't until New Year's Day, the 1st of January. Gifts were not shared until after the Christmas holiday. That was supposed to be about the birth of our Lord. The only exception might be that Queen Elizabeth would have gotten massive presents. If you were a Lord, even one who might have slightly offended the Queen over the past year, it was very important for you to get something very valuable and very fancy to give to the queen. Often you would not have any audience with the queen. She usually spent her Christmas with very close courtiers, but your gift was noticed. And if it wasn't there, that even more was noticed. So this time of singing, dancing, playing games was started on December the 24th and went all the way to January 6th. There also was no Christmas tree that had not started until much later as a custom uh, actually came from Germany. Uh, but there was bringing in the greens. Uh, you would find homes decked out with holly, ivy, box, yew, uh, laurel, uh, hemlock, and mistletoe all brought into your house to brighten it up and be cheery during this Christmas time. And candles were put, burned quite a bit. Candles were a necessity of life. There was no electricity, but even more so, there were much more burning of candles, much more brightness in homes. You just were expected to keep everything lighter and lighter. There was a tradition, some people believe, of what was called the kissing bow, which would have been a bundle of mistletoe that would have been hung in a very special place. However, it had much more meaning. 
kissing under the kissing bow would have been another year of marital bliss. If your marriage was on the rocks a little bit, maybe kissing under the mistletoe might bring it back together. Also, young couples who kiss under the mistletoe was seen as a sign that they would wed within the coming year. Another thing that we shared was the Yule Log. However, it had much more demand. The Yule Log was usually a very, very large log. It had to be decorated itself. It would have ivy put on it, and it would have cranberries on it, and a variety of other things just to make it look as festive as possible. But then it would be burned, and it would be expected to burn for 12 days. It had to burn for the entire festival of the Christmas time. So you had to have a very big log, and you had to have a very big hearth to do this. A lot of smaller homes, of course, that wouldn't have had this, would have had a log that they would have broken up into pieces and brought in at various times. But the thought was the fire had to keep going. The holly and the ivy, when they are both full. And then, of course, there was the music. Music was everywhere. Carolings were very important. Feasts were broken up so that people could perform and sing together. And most of the carols that were done were of a religious nature. There were some secular hymns, but most of them would have been of a religious nature and would have been very demanding of any voice whatsoever in order to pull off. You had to sing, and you had to sing well. In England, the Lord of Revels would have been replaced by the Lord of Misrule, and his job would have been to figure out all the wonderful entertainment that would happen at court during the Christmas season. Then, in several smaller uh, municipalities, there would have been mayors who would have been replaced by their own version of the Lord of Misrule. But basically, business shut down. It was 12 days of nothing but feasting, eating, partying, singing, and dancing. Among all the songs, of course, there were plays, there were masks, there were madrigals, there were Moorish dances, jigs, all kinds of music that would have been happening constantly throughout the festival. Some of the more popular things to do during the festival would have been going to bear baiting, uh, to play cards. Gambling was very, very big at the time, and there was always lots and lots of drink. So people were celebrating in a variety of ways. There's some very funny games that they would play, the Elizabethans would play. Some of the games they would play were kind of blind man's bluff. Uh, one was called Hoodman's Blind, pretty much along the lines of blind man's bluff, except that when a man had uh, head blindfolded or a hood placed over his head, his goal was to try and find the prettiest woman, because whoever he caught, he could kiss. There was also a really weird game, and again, these are adults playing this game. It was called Hot Cockles. <laughs> and Hot Cockles was to blindfold or put a bag over somebody's head, and then people would take turns hitting him with a stick, and he'd have to figure out who it was who hit him. If he guessed the right person, they took their place under the hood. If not, he had to stay there until he could figure out who was hitting him with the stick. What a fun game. Presumably, they didn't go until blood happened. The other weird game I found out about was one called Shoe the Mare. One man was picked as the mare. His shoes were taken from him, and then he was told to run. He had to run and try to stop from being captured by everybody else who was playing the game who would hold him down and force his shoes back on his feet. That was called Shoeing the Mare. And this is what adults did. No wonder they had a lot of drink. 
Now let's talk about the food. First of all, it was a time of exotic foods. New foods were being found in the new world. Foods like tomatoes, potatoes, red peppers, and pineapples. They were very, very rare, and they would find their ways to the tables of uh, Elizabethan England. They also had citrus fruit, uh, quinces, melon, apricots, all sent in from Southern Europe. And so all of these wonderful sweets were then added to by the newest invention of all, and that was sugar. Now to the Elizabethans, sugar was still a relatively new thing, and they loved it. They loved sugar on everything, candied fruit, candied beets, everything. Elizabeth had such a taste for sugar herself, and said that she turned her teeth black by just eating so much sugar. But the main dish at most feasts would have been centered around a meat. And on Christmas Day, the main dish was called brawn. Most families had brawn. Brawn would have been basically a force-fed boar. Uh, and its head would have been used to decorate the table of the well-to-do. This force-fed boar would have, of course, that iconic apple in its mouth. And it would be roasted pork, mainly, that people would have on that day. Although some people would have roast beef and mustard. Roast beef and mustard were was a huge delicacy. It was a very rare thing to have mustard. And when, so when you had it, it was a special occasion. As a matter of fact, mustard and beef go together so well that it was mentioned even in Shakespeare's Midsummer's Night Dream. And they would have fowl. Turkeys were not all that new, but uh, they had come into the court since uh, Henry VIII. Turkeys came from the New World. They were a very inexpensive meat. They were easy to fatten up, and so a lot of people had turkey. The other thing they'd have is roast goose, of course, and peacock. Lots of peacock. Some people uh, talked about how the peacock would be skinned, roasted, and then the skin would be delicately placed back on the peacock so its feathers were intact as it was presented for the meal. Or they have what was called cock pie, and cock pie was a peacock pie where they would save the head and pop it up through the center of the pie meat so that it had this glorious decapitated head on the top of their cock pie. Elizabeth once demanded that everybody should have goose for Christmas, and she once demanded that everybody this Christmas will indeed have goose. This, of course, was to celebrate the great success of the English Navy against the Spanish Armada. And goose was the first meal that Elizabeth had after learning of the defeat of the Spanish Armada, so she demanded everybody had goose. It's highly unlikely that happened, however. Goose was quite expensive and was much more valuable for the eggs, so it's quite often that anyone in the countryside would would have foregone having them demanded goose for Christmas. Of course, as I mentioned, they were singing amidst the feast. They would stop and do carols, and they would drink from the wassail bowls. Wassail was also very, very important. It was a very hearty drink, often warm, and uh, wassail bowls were, were passed around and shared in common with everybody who was there at your feast. The common desserts were things like marzipan, which is an almond paste and sugar. Um, a lot of the time, the marzipan was decorated with edible gold at wealthy homes where you could eat the gold right off of the candy. And then, of course, candied fruits, heavily sugared, uh, mince pies, heavily sugared, and the famous plum pudding. Now, plum pudding or the Christmas pudding wasn't necessarily a pudding like we think of it today. It was often very hot, and it was a mixture of sweetbreads and meat as well as fruit. So it wasn't quite a pudding at all. 
And of course, they've had breads, really sweet breads, gingerbreads. Um, they would forego the brown bread that a lot of the less well-to-do would have to eat every day. White bread was often common, even among a poor person's house, to celebrate the year. They also enjoyed a dessert called leech. And leech was a uh, sweet dessert, um, a marzipan that was uh, made with uh, heavy cream, uh, sugar, and it was uh, cut into a checkerboard design. Some of these designs got so intricate, it's said that Queen Elizabeth herself ate a version of St. Paul's at one Christmas feast that was carved out of marzipan and was at least two feet high. And finally, they had drinks, lots of drinks, mold wine, a drink called syllabum. This is a special hot specialty. It was a hot milk with rum or wine, or they have what was called lamb's wool, which was hot ale or cider, um, often mixed with sherry and spices. It had apple in it, and it was a very hearty, healthy drink <laughs> that was heated until it had a nice, woolly, hot head of steam on top of it, which is how it got its name lamb's wool. But this is my favorite, is that they had something called, on the very last night, on Twelfth Night, they had Twelfth Cake. And Twelfth Cake was a very large and um, semi-dry cake, but inside that cake they would have one dried pea and one dried bean. The girl who got the dried pea in her piece and the man who got the dried bean in his piece would be de uh, declared the Twelfth Night King and Queen of the Night, and they would be treated as royalty through the rest of the evening. After the end of Twelfth Night, things went back to a very hard and harsh life. There is a lot of hard work and a lot of long, cold nights. But for 12 days, there was an absolute joy that fell upon everybody who lived in London and across the countryside. And that would have been no different for Shakespeare. I hope you have a very wonderful Christmas, and I want to thank you for joining me for this, a very special Christmas rendition of the Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Join me here every Sunday, right here on KSEF. I'd love to see you again next time and every time thereafter. In the meantime, thank you for joining me, and stay barred to the bone.